Is it ever right? Is it ever proper? Is it ever appropriate? Say it however you want. Is it ever right for a follower of Jesus, for a Christian, to break the law? Is it ever right for a Christian to look at the law and say, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that? Is it ever right for a Christian to break the law? Is, it, is there such a thing as lawful disobedience? Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and today on Faith Is, we're going to talk about that idea, and we're going to use the book of Daniel to help us understand some very important things, not only from the book of Daniel, but for our times. And we're going to stretch in God's direction, and we're going to develop a deepening sense of trustworthiness toward God, because we're going to realize that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So I'm glad you're with us. We do this to help you, and I'm grateful for you to be here. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we do this program to benefit you and to help each other grow so that we can stand strong when we need to, and so we can understand the foundation that we find from the pages of the Bible, because God doesn't leave us without a foundation in difficult times or in easier times. He gives us everything we need so that we can live lives of faithfulness to him and of honor and integrity. And so we're going to take a look today at, at some thoughts and ideas from Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along and think about that. If you don't have it with you, take some time, pull out a copy of the Bible and read the stories, reflect on them. There are a lot of things in there, and I'm sure we won't touch on everything, but we'll try to touch on enough to give us guidance for these days, for we live in really challenging times. None of us could have expected to be facing some of the decisions that people are facing today. And we want to talk about that. Particularly, we want to talk about how do you decide about this vaccine mandate and what that means to people all across the country, what it might mean to you. Maybe you're under pressure to have the vaccine. How are you going to make that decision? How are you going to resolve that? Well, we want to think about some of those kind of things because the Bible gives us guidance on that. And I think specifically the book of Daniel gives us guidance on that. So let's take a look. Let's remind ourselves of some things we talked about last week because we talked about Daniel chapter one last week. So we'll review a little bit of that and then we'll go forward to the pages of chapters two and three, primarily focusing on chapter three. So the book of Daniel starts with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, coming to Jerusalem and besieging it, an attempt to take the city as his possession. And Daniel is very clear in telling the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar appearing at Jerusalem to conquer the city. It's very clear because it says in Daniel chapter 2 that God gave the city, God gave the king, Jehoiakim, to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the city because he was stronger, braver, mightier, none of that. He was given the city as a gift from God because the people had been unfaithful to God. And repeatedly, repeatedly, God had sent prophets and warnings of all kinds to the people that they needed to return to God and to be faithful to him, that they shouldn't be following idols and falling into all kinds of terrible worship that they needed to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people just didn't do it. The repeated problem all the way through the history of, of God's people. And finally, God gave them up to Nebuchadnezzar. 
very important to understand it wasn't God's desire, it wasn't what God wanted to do, but clearly he had to do that. Now, some people want to ask, is there a parallel between the times that we live in the United States and that incident in Israel? And I think there is a bit of a parallel. I would hasten to say that I don't think the United States in any sense substitutes for God's people, Israel. I don't think that God has moved on from his people. I don't think that at all. I think God has given the United States a unique place in the world by his design and purpose. And I think we need to give heed to the lessons that people from long ago learned. And Israel learned a hard lesson that they needed to be faithful to God. And after they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into exile, they learned to be faithful to God, and they never fell into the same kind of sinful practices that they had fallen into before. They remained faithful to God. The same way we're going through hard times in this country, and people are complaining about one thing or another, and, and understandably so, and wondering what's going on. We're, we're seeing how, how influential voices are saying that it's right what God says is wrong, and it's wrong what God says is right. They're flipping things entirely upside down. And people are beginning to wonder what's going on, what's going to happen to us, what's God up to. And my suggestion to that is this, if God gave his people, his covenant people to Nebuchadnezzar, can we not expect him to be paying attention to us? And we need to learn that lesson and we need to return to God. Our nation was founded on the principles of the Bible. Not much dispute about that. People will argue about it and try to argue it away. They can't. People that came to this country came for religious freedom. They came to worship God according to their conscience. They developed the idea of the United States in their churches. In fact, a, a pastor preached a sermon that laid the foundation for what later became the Constitution of the United States. And we've slipped from that. We've turned aside from that, and it's time for us to take seriously that we need to repent and turn back to God. And I think that's the, that's the message of that opening part of Daniel to us is that we should not take God for granted. Israel didn't think that would ever happen to them. We should not think we are immune from that either. So God gave Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar an absolutely significant warning to us. Part of what Nebuchadnezzar did then was to take the people, the best and the brightest, we often say, from the royal court of Jerusalem back with him to Babylon, a very common practice. You would take the human capital with you because you wanted to put them to work in your royal court, and they were going to serve you and enrich you and help you manage your kingdom better. So he took the brightest and best, including Daniel and his three friends, and they were set up to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. That was what was expected, and they agreed to do it without apparently any objection. We have no record that they objected, objected to learning the language or the literature of the Babylonians, even though some of it surely would have had a conflict with what they understood that God had told them in his scriptures and in, that they had learned in the royal court in Jerusalem. But they objected, or at least Daniel objected, and his three friends agreed that they would not eat the diet the king prescribed for them. We don't understand why, but we do know that Daniel resolved not to eat those rations, and he asked for permission to try a different diet on a trial basis, and the second place in Daniel chapter 1, we see God gave Daniel favor with the steward that took care of them, and he agreed to the trial of the different rations. Now, we don't know why, again, that 
that Daniel rejected the rations, but we do know that God gave Daniel favor with the steward because he resolved to remain pure. He did not want to defile himself with the king's rations. That's the why that Daniel got favor, because he resolved. And many other things resulted from that in the book of Daniel, and we get a good introduction to that in Daniel chapter 1. So then, then we go to, they finish the course, they come out ahead, and at the end of their studies, it says that God gave Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we, we know them as, he gave them wisdom and understanding, special abilities to, to grasp their course of study and to use it, and the king found them 10 times better than any of his other counselors. So it was a very significant, uh, very significant milestone in their lives that they did so much better. And it also says that Daniel has special ability to understand visions and dreams. And that, of course, comes into play later in the story as well. The why of that is why would God give them that special ability? Well, probably for several reasons. And, and the first one is because they resolved. They had made up their mind to be faithful to God, period. And that resolve moves, apparently, the hand of God to help them in ways they would not have imagined. Second reason that I was thinking about that he probably gave them these special abilities is survival. Remember, they were, they were pagan people all around them. They were the special ones, and they were the kind of suspect ones. They, they were the outsiders, you might say. They were in the middle of all of that. And so they had to have some abilities to survive. And so probably their special ability to have insights and wisdom and understanding of all these things gave them a, a, an extra opportunity to navigate the politics of the royal court. And then third, it becomes very apparent through the rest of the story that one of the reasons God gave them these special abilities was to be a witness. And so Nebuchadnezzar could come to know that God was God, and he wasn't. And so I don't think we can under-appreciate under, uh, this idea that he was a, a witness, that Daniel and his friends were a witness. So that's kind of the introduction in Daniel chapter 1, and it, it gets us going and it helps us realize that that the whole story flowed from God giving, giving Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, giving favor to Daniel when it came to the choice of diet, and giving them the ability to learn the language and literature and do 10 times better than anybody else so that they could survive the royal court and be a witness to the one true God. So now we turn to Daniel chapter 2, and in Daniel chapter 2, the, the question we wrestle with, if, if we wrestled in the first chapter with uh, who is God, are you going to resolve to follow God faithfully? The question in the second chapter is, is around the idea of what can God do and only God can do. So they come up with a, with a question that, that the way the king sets it up, maybe out of his own hubris or arrogance or whatever, maybe because God moved in him. We, we don't see that specifically spelled out in the scriptures, but the king poses a question that only God can answer. And so the resolution of that points out to Nebuchadnezzar, points out the whole kingdom, really, because it points Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it troubles him. In those days, they took dreams seriously. We just take dreams rather casually, but they, they believed they had meaning and importance, and so they really wrestled with them, and the king was troubled by this dream, and he really needed to know the interpretation of the dream. 
And we know that the wise advisors in those days had books that helped them catalog dreams and, and help them refine the meaning. So once they understood what it, what a king had dreamed, then they could take those events and search through their catalog of information and come up with an interpretation. And so the wise advisors said to the king, well, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. Well, that seems kind of sensible, doesn't it? Why wouldn't the king tell them the dream? But he wouldn't. For whatever reason, he decided, nope, I'm just a little suspect of you guys. And I want you to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Well, that put them in a real panic. What are they going to do? Because they, they knew that they couldn't, that they, they couldn't figure out what the king had dreamed. And, and, and they knew that if they didn't know what the king had dreamed, they couldn't begin to interpret the dream. So it's, it's really a, a, an amazing story when you look at that and you see what the king is doing. And he's threatening them. And he says, look, if you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to have you all killed. And that would have included Daniel and his friends, as near as we can tell, would have been the whole group of them. And so they were in a, they were in a, a major panic. And, and uh, they said to the king, it was very interesting in, in Daniel chapter two, they said to the king, look, no one can do what you're asking. Only the gods can reveal the dream. Very significant statement in there because it sets up what's about to happen. Well, Daniel hears about all that's going on. Of course he would. He and his buddies were in the royal court. And so Daniel sets about asking God to show him the dream. Now, remember, God gave Daniel special ability to understand visions and dreams. That was chapter one. So now Daniel is saying to God, look, I need to understand the king's dream because we got, we got ourselves in a real problem here. So would you tell us the, the dream? And so they pray, they ask God, and God gives them the dream. He says to Daniel, here's what the king dreamed. So Daniel now knew the dream. And of course, God also gave him the interpretation of that dream. And so, so Daniel goes to the king and says, hold on, don't kill all the guys. I got it taken care of. I know the dream and I know the interpretation and, and just give me a chance to spell it out for you, king. So make sure you don't miss this. Here's what has happened. The wise advisors to the king, the wise advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar said to the king, only the gods can tell you what you dreamed. And they admitted they didn't have access to that information. And so it sets up that if anybody does have access to that information, they must have gotten it from a God. Now, in those guys' mind, they probably didn't distinguish between the one true God like we do, but they knew that they couldn't get that information except from a God. So when Daniel steps up and he says, I have the dream and I have the interpretation, and when he gives that to them, immediately everyone would have recognized that Daniel heard from God. And Daniel is clear in his explanation when he goes to the king to give credit to God that it wasn't his own special skill or anything like that. It was because God had given it to him. He makes it clear to Nebuchadnezzar and explains the, the, um, the whole thing to him. And Nebuchadnezzar responds in a most interesting way. Now, here's a guy who set this all up and, and who knew because his wise men had told him that that there was no way anybody could know it except that a God would reveal it. Daniel 
gives the dream in all of its detail and gives the interpretation of that. And so then Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, verse 46 of Daniel, reading from the New International Version, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So lo and behold, the king who set all this up, set it up at the risk of the death of the wise advisors of Babylon, who set it all up, now comes and acknowledges to Daniel that the God that gave you this information is the God of gods. Now remember, this is also the same Nebuchadnezzar that took the worship utensils from the temple in Jerusalem back to his temple, the temple of his God in, ba in Babylon, thinking that now his God was the superior God, and the God of Israel was the inferior God. And so they put him in that temple because that's what they did, because they were the conquering people. And now he gets this incredible revelation of what his dream was and what the interpretation was. And now he acknowledges that, wow, Daniel's God is the God of gods. Pretty remarkable. Now, we're going to learn in chapter three that that whole idea didn't really stick. But um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's get into that story a little bit so that we can understand it. One of the things to understand is that, that the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that Daniel explained to him and interpreted to him started out with a head of gold. And Daniel explained to the king that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was that head of gold. So here's a statue that is gold, and Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the head of that statue. And so then we come to chapter 3, and we're introduced to another statue. Now, it's really quite interesting here, and um, we need to read some of this story so that we don't overlook any of it, and so you get an idea of the sense of, of Daniel chapter 3. But keep in mind that we go from a statue in a dream with a head of gold identified as Nebuchadnezzar to a statue, an image of gold in chapter 3. So reading from verse 1, Daniel chapter 3, New International Version. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So let's make sure we understand what's going on here. In his dream, he saw that he was the head of gold. That was the interpretation Daniel gave him from God. And we didn't get into the meaning of that dream. We just can't take time for that. Uh, it's quite fascinating. But this other 
information from Daniel chapter three for us is much more pertinent for today. But it's it's interesting that he takes this idea that of the image of gold and he translates it into this very large statue or image that he expects people to worship. And it's probably about 90 feet high. It's a very, very large image and uh, unmistakable. And all of the leaders are expected to bow down and worship the image. Now, there's a few ways to understand this statue, this image, what we might call an idol, although you heard the scriptures that didn't mention it as an idol. This image may have been in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, a divine image uh, representing a deity of some kind. And so he would have used that because often, and it still goes on today, people who want to manage a kingdom or have the kingdom unified around something will unify it around religious practices. And so he may have used this as a way to unify the people around the worship of this image. And so he called them to bow down. And he called all of the leaders from all around the kingdom of Babylon. And you heard the list of them. They were the officials. Then they came to the dedication of this image. So the image may have been religious in nature. It also may have been a kind of representation of the king, because kings often thought they were a type of deity as well. So we don't know exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had in mind, but we know this was important to him, and we know he expected all of his top officials to bow down before the image when they heard the music. So let's pick that up, verse 7, see what happens. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, cither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you can see that in your mind, big open space, big, huge image you could see from a great distance, and all of the people bowed down were prostrate before this image. That was typical of the way they paid homage to great people or to images like this. And so they heard the music and they all bow down. Verse eight, the plot thickens. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, cither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, here's a very interesting accusation, and it's exactly what you would expect. So the Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not bow down to worship the image and they were expected to become Babylonian in every way. That's, that's the point of chapter one, learning the language and literature, fitting in and being one of the wise advisors to the king. They were expected to do all of that to serve the king and to serve the king's gods. Because remember, after all, their god had been defeated, and so now they were obligated to shift their allegiance to a new god. Well, here he calls all of them together, and these guys don't do it. They don't bow down. And they're rivals, you might say, maybe the people that are jealous, they rat them out to the king. Now, you have to understand at the end of chapter two, after Daniel had made his words known, his understanding known, his 
his re recognition that he had understood the dream and the interpretation of it. The king praised Daniel's God, but also promoted Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators over the province of Babylon. And Daniel remained in the royal court himself. So they got a promotion out of this. Then you can imagine that the other guys around, they would have wanted that promotion too. And so now they find a chance to get them. And so they go to the king and they explain to the king, these Jewish guys are not doing what you said. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, the image I made, very good, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So this is very significant what's going on here. Okay, so the king explains again what's expected of them. When you hear the music, you're expected to bow down. I hear that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up. And I expect you to do that. It's very good. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, remember in chapter two, just what little we touched on, we talked about how the king required his wise advisors to tell him the dream. And they said, well, nobody can tell you the dream, but the gods. And Daniel steps up and says, God has given me the dream. And he tells him the dream and the interpretation. So, so here we have a similar setup because the king now says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. So think about all that's going on with that. The king thinks he's mighty thinks he's strong, thinks he has the toughest army, the best soldiers, that it was his might that defeated Jerusalem. Now, we know it was God that gave Jerusalem to the king, but the king doesn't know all about that. He thinks he's the, he's the guy, so he's all enamored with his success and his kingdom, and so his power is, is virtually unlimited. He can, he can have done what he wants to have done, because he's the king. You can't stand up to that kind of power. You do what you're told, or you are crushed. And that's what he's saying to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You do what you're told, or you're going to be burnt to a crisp in the fiery furnace, the blazing furnace. Not a pleasant prospect by any means, but here's the real interesting part of that. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. So see, just as it was set up in chapter two to, to identify a God who could tell the dream and its interpretation, now it's set up to say, what God is strong enough to deliver you from me? Because you've all seen that my gods beat your gods, my army beat your army. So where are you going to find a God that's stronger than the God that's in my corner? what God will be able to do to rescue you from my hand. Verse, uh, verse, what is it? 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, 
we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So here we have it. King Nebuchadnezzar was clear what God can rescue you. And now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, well, we know what God can rescue us, and we're going to trust him to do it. So what we have here is not a battle so much of wills between <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar and, and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's, it's more a matter of which God is stronger. And so it's setting up the whole dynamic of, is Nebuchadnezzar's God stronger, tougher, mightier, or is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stronger? And they say, and don't miss this, they say, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So they were confidence in God. They had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Amazing. I don't know how they had such confidence, but they did. But then they go on to say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That is a strong statement, a very strong statement. Even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What are they saying there? There are things that matter more than life itself. There are things that matter more than anything. You can turn us to ash, Nebuchadnezzar, but we will not serve your God or worship your image. That is a strong statement. Do you think they got there overnight? I think it goes all the way back to chapter one, where Daniel resolved and, and they were with Daniel, and now they're standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the king. Even if he doesn't rescue us, we will not bow down. Well, there's more to the story, and we're going to find that out in just a minute. So stay with us. Don't go away. Be right back. I want to give you an update on Healthy Cell Focus and Recall Supplement. This is important. I'm about ready to take one now. It's the morning. I am in a flurry of activities. I have to get this report filed with America Out Loud Talk Radio. And this are, these are gel-based vitamin supplements. Focus and Recall has uh, six major domains. First is focus and neurotransmitters with L-threonine, glycine, and L-tyrosine. Uh, recall mental speed and rapid learning, alpha-lipoic acid, and phosphatidylserine. Brain flow and support, curcumin and taurine, green coffee bean extract. Brain cell oxidative, uh, antioxidative activity, lutein black pepper, uh, fruit, and extract. And lastly, cognitive fuel, brain energy, omega-3, 6, and 9, MCT oil, vitamin B6, and B12. Now, is it proven that these can improve uh, your memory and make a significant uh, impact in your overall mental function? I have to tell you, that's really up to you to give it a try. But I can tell you right now, I am not going to gamble without taking a healthy cell today. These are wonderful products. There's no downside to them. But go to HealthyCell.com and put in the promotional box out loud to get 20% off your next purchase of Healthy Cell products. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.
AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio, our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Glad to have you here. We're following the story of Daniel and his friends from Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we left where King Nebuchadnezzar had set this whole problem up as a battle between his God and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been summoned along with all the other leaders in Babylon to bow down to a golden statue, an image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And he told them to bow down or they would be cast into a blazing furnace. And he said to them, King Nebuchadnezzar said to them, what God will be able to save you? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Either do it or you're gonna die. You have no hope. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace that the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the battle is joined. King Nebuchadnezzar set it up. He said, what God can rescue you? And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we know one that can. We think he will. We have confidence in him. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We'd rather be ash than betray our God. Well, the story continues. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and, mayor, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. 
They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So remarkably enough, they didn't escape the fire, but God was with them in the fire. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked around unharmed. They had a companion there, and they described the companion as looking like a son of the gods. We don't know exactly what that means, but it seems pretty certain that somehow, in some way, God was with them there, and he walked with them in the fire. And then when they were commanded to come out, they walked out to the king, and the king was amazed. The king who set up this battle of gods, who joined this battle and said, who can rescue you, found out who could rescue them. Three men stood up to the king, stood up to the king for God, and walked out of the fire unharmed. It says here, there was no smell of smoke on them, no smell of fire on them at all just remarkable. So Nebuchadnezzar has no choice and seems to have no problem acknowledging their God and promoting them. And so we see again in chapter three, where, where it's a face-off between the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve. That God won the day and demonstrated that he is God. So if you ask a question here, who is God? Nebuchadnezzar's gods or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's gods, it's clearly the latter. It's clearly the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how do we apply this to, to our day? And, and I want to think along with you, and I encourage you to think this through for yourself. I don't think you should make any conclusion that, that you're not comfortable with before God. But I want to talk about how we live in a time when we're being forced, many of us, not all of us, but many of us are being forced to bow down to a mandate from the United States government. And we refer to it as a vaccine mandate. You will get this vaccine or you will lose your job. And it's coming from the, the office of president. Even some businesses are doing it on their own. And they're requiring people to do this under threat of losing their job. Now, that's not at all like losing your life in the fire. Of course, I understand that, but it's significant. And we should not, we should not uh, overlook that. Now, I want to make sure that, that we understand that I know of no place in the Bible that it says to a follower of Jesus, to a Christian, that you must take the vaccine or you must not. My understanding of the Bible is that God gives us the responsibility and the opportunity to make choices in life, and this is one of those. I don't know any place in the Bible that it prescribes a course of action. And so you need to understand that, that from my perspective and from most people I know, you're not going to fall under condemnation from me or from somebody else based on the choice you make. You need to make that before God. That's important. And so we want to think about how do we process all of this and come to a conclusion that before God we're comfortable with and we think is the right one. So one of the things that we need to, to wrestle with and that I think the Bible is absolutely clear about is that 
that we are not our own. As followers of Jesus, we are not our own. Now, much is being said in the popular discussion about this, that, that we have autonomy over our own bodies and we should have the opportunity to choose what goes into them. And on that level, I agree with that, but there's a little bit more to it for Christians. Yes, we agree. Everybody has and should have the freedom to either put something in their body or not. In the same way, people have always had the freedom to accept certain kinds of medical treatment or reject them. And we have always respected their ability, their opportunity, their responsibility to make those decisions. This is now different because it's being mandated and forced on people. And people are under a lot of coercive threats to bow down, shall we say. So we understand that in the name of liberty, everybody should have that choice. But as Christians, we have a little different perspective on that. I think a higher responsibility. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's quite a long discussion about the impact on our bodies of sin. And I understand the context here, and I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The context here is, is related to and specifically applying to sexual sin. And it's very pointed about how the Christian is to be pure and not defile themselves with sexual immorality. But there's a principle that kind of sums things up at the end of the chapter that I think transcends just the specific application in this case that, that 1 Corinthians gives that helps us see the broader principle and helps us apply it and think through how this vaccine mandate applies to us as followers of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 still reading from the New International Version. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The concluding line there is, honor God with your bodies. Now, again, I understand the specific context, but I'm absolutely convinced that this is a broader principle that applies to our bodies in total, not just in the context of this specific sin that's being addressed in 1 Corinthians 6. So he says in verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? He's asking that rhetorically. Uh, he knows that, we know that. The Holy Spirit goes on to say, who is in you, whom you have received from God. So he's reminding everybody that the Holy Spirit came and dwells in the physical body of the believer. And so we are, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of temple is very significant. It goes all the way back. Some people argue, and I think they effectively argue. I don't tend to think of it this way, but it's just because I, it's a new idea to me that going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the original creation was a temple for God's dwelling. And there was a perfect world, and God came, and he walked and talked with Adam and Eve, we read that in the story of Genesis. And so people think of that original creation as a temple to God. Well, I tend to think more about the, the temple that was revealed in the life of, the, of God's people. When they came out of Egypt, when Moses led them across the Red Sea to, to Sinai, and God gave them instructions, he gave them instructions to build a tabernacle, a portable worship facility. It would be much like the later temple that was built, but this was a place to reverence God, and it was a place where God dwelt among the people. Later, as the story unfolds, Solomon was given the opportunity to build a permanent temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent structure 
that was the place where God would dwell among his people. So the temple idea as a place of God's dwelling is, is really fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit into the life of the believer. And as he says here, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So we need to remind ourselves that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that gives us a whole different level of thinking. We are to honor God with our bodies. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So it's a solemn responsibility for us to honor God with our bodies. And we need to think about that. So then we need to think, okay, how does this whole business of, of a vaccine mandate apply to us? And, and how do we process that? Now, there's an idea that probably you're aware of, then we need to think about how that applies to this. There's an idea that, that we have developed over time, that there are some laws that are just and some laws that are unjust. We might say it differently by saying some laws are moral, some laws are immoral. Or we might say there are legal laws or illegal laws. And, and that's been a well-established principle for many years. So one of the things that we have to process now is, what's this whole business about just and unjust laws? And, and we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they recognized that bowing to the king's image that he put up there was an unjust, immoral law before God, because God had said they were to worship any image like that. So at the heart of understanding just and unjust is that a just law lines up with what God expects of us, and an unjust law does not. It violates what God expects of us. And so if we're going to be faithful to God, the ultimate giver of law, then we have to sort that out. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. So people have wrestled with this for a long time, and, and some of you may remember hearing about a letter that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a Birmingham jail. He had been arrested because they had done some protesting, and he had been arrested and put in jail, and he'd received a communication from some other religious leaders wondering how he could behave the way he was behaving as a follower of Jesus, as a minister of the gospel. And so he wrote this very long letter to them. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's much too long to do that. But I want to read some excerpts of it to give you an idea of the thinking that helps us sort out just and unjust law. Now, what Martin Luther King was dealing with was the idea of segregation and liberty and opportunity for, for his people. And, and that matters. It mattered then, it matters now. But the principles apply to other situations. And I want you to think about how that might apply to this problem of the vaccine mandate. And then I want to come to a couple of conclusions so that we have at least a place to stand and give you a challenge now, if you're facing this, a challenge to sort it out, but also to give you some biblical and, and correct understanding of how to think your way through it. So one of the things that he says to the people that write him this letter and his response to them, they, they kind of want to know, how he can act this way just doesn't seem right to them. So here's an excerpt from that letter. He writes, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. 
I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. So just in a nutshell, he's saying that if the law doesn't line up with what God says, if it's not moral based on God's understanding of right and wrong, if it's, if it's not right, then it's an unjust law and it's not a law at all. And that we have a moral responsibility to disobey an unjust law. Now he goes on to explain a little bit more, reading again from the letter. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now, that's quite a statement, and I think that that's something we really need to wrestle with and think about here. So he says, any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. So ask yourself, when it comes to vaccine mandates, does it uplift human personality or does it degrade human personality? Is this a way to give liberty to people and help them have a better life because they've made good choices for themselves? Or is it a way for someone to come along and, and exert their power over someone else and to require them to do something in the face of a threat? In this case, for many people, the threat of the loss of, of their job, their ability to, to, to take care of their family, to have a life. So Dr. King is really quite straightforward on this and, and how we need to really consider whether the laws that we're talking about are moral and just or whether they're not. And he says quite plainly that we have a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. So that's something important for us to think about. We need to think about this carefully. And what is our moral responsibility before God? Now, I can't tell you what to do. I wouldn't presume to tell you what to do. I said earlier that this whole business is, is, a, is a choice for you to make. And, and we have always understood that people have the opportunity to make these choices. And I think you should have that same opportunity and you shouldn't face coercion in the process. It should be your choice. And so you need to think about that in terms of the just and unjust law and in terms of whether it's right for you to be expected to do that in terms of whether or not it's uplifting or degrading. That's, that's part of what Martin Luther King says in understanding how he was approaching the violation of, of unjust laws in his day. And this was back in 1963, so this isn't a new problem that people wrestle with a just and an unjust law. So there's a couple of other excerpts I'd like to give you from, from this letter. Uh, it's, it is a very long letter. I would encourage you to read it. You can find it, do a web search. You can find it. It's, it's, a, it's readily available. It's not hard to find. And it's really worth your while to read it and understand his, his, um, his thinking. 
And a lot of times we understand these historical figures because we remember what the press accounts were about them or what somebody said about them. But when you read this letter, you get a whole different level of understanding of what he believed and what he was doing and how they approached their protests in those days. It's, it's really remarkable and quite different from what's going on today when people are protesting. But anyway, let's get back to the letter so I don't miss that for you. I read from the letter. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. So you understand what he's saying here is that when there is an unjust law, when there is an immoral law, when there is a law that doesn't match up with what God says, the highest respect for law is to call that law out and not obey it. He says you need to do that. We need to do that openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. He went to, to jail more than once. Other people did too, because they were not willing to back down. They believed in the rightness of their cause. And so he calls us and says, it's the highest respect for law when we disobey an unjust law. And one more statement from, from his letter, and, and I think you'll enjoy this in light of the, the story from Daniel. Of course, he writes, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. Yeah, see, it goes all the way back to then. And that's why I think they're a good example and a help for us in these days. And it just doesn't have to be over the vaccine mandate, although that's the, that's the threat that looms over so many people. But it has to do with our ability as followers of God, as people who are faithful to God, to understand what God says is right and what God says is wrong, and understand that we must obey God rather than people. God is our first allegiance. That's what we got out of Daniel chapter one. Are we going to follow God or are we going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's God? And Daniel and his guys said, no, we're not even going to eat the food. And God blessed them because of their resolve. So we have to sort that out. And you have to sort that out in your own mind, in your own conscience before God as to how you're going to manage that if you face this mandate. Now, from my perspective, I'm convinced that there is no legal authority for the federal government to require mandates on this vaccine. There is no place in the Constitution that gives them that authority. And the law, the mandate that they're putting out there is simply illegal. There's no easy way to say that. I think they know it. I think it's like Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to make you do this or we're going to crush you. I know they say it in different terms. They make it sound nice and necessary, and it's for the good of everybody to stop the virus. The virus is more than 99% survivable. It is not the threat that they have made it out to be, and they're behaving illegally, and we need to make sure we understand that. 
that's one of it. That's one aspect of, of thinking through the mandate. The other one is I'm convinced that it's an immoral mandate because we who are followers of Jesus are the temples of the Holy Spirit, and we have a stewardship responsibility to manage that correctly. And before God, we have to make careful decisions about that. And, and I know, and I think God knows, and I don't think that he has told us one way or the other. He helps us sort this out, that we will have differences on that. But there is such a thing as conscience. And if your conscience speaks one way to you, that's an indication that you are to follow that direction that God has given you. The New Testament has conscience ideas all over it, and that's what's right here in 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, that, that is a whole business of conscience. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor, your, honor God with your bodies. It's a question of conscience. This is not an easy time, and this is not an easy statement for people to hear or to, to wrestle with, and I can't give you an easy answer. But I believe we have to look not just for easy answers, the same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. We have to look to correct answers. And sometimes we have to stand up, and sometimes we have to take a risk. And if that's what God is saying to you, then take courage, because the God who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire is with you, because he promised he would never leave or forsake his people. May God bless you as you make your decisions. May God give you grace and insight and courage and strength. May you be the person that God always imagined you could be. And may he bless you in every way possible. We'll be back next week. Amen. <laughs>